Hi, my name's Kate Sweeney and I'm a Chancery Barrister at Park Lane Plowden Chambers. Today I'm joined by Marisa Lloyd and Sarah Harrison who are two specialists in probate and trust work and in particular mediations. What these two do not know about mediations is not worth knowing. And today, hopefully we're going to give you some top tips and tricks to make sure you get the most out of your mediations for your clients. So jumping straight into before the mediation, what I really want to know from you guys, are what are your three top tips for preparing a mediation? Marisa, I'm putting you on the spot first. Thanks, Kate. Um, I think the first thing I'd have to say about mediation is to outline the strengths and weaknesses of your case properly in the position statement and remember to acknowledge the issues on which you agree as well as the issues on, on which um, you have a dispute. Did you have a comment on the position statement, Sarah? Yeah, I, I have to say when I'm preparing a case, I put a huge amount of effort into my position statement and I think it really pays in two respects. It gives the client great confidence that you're on top of the case and I think also it's really important to identify to the other side what weaknesses you've noticed in their case. So yeah, a lot of my opponents do a position statement, but I, they don't make me feel under pressure. Whereas my aim in doing my position statement is to pressurise them as much as possible before we actually start the mediation. So Sarah, do you, do you think it's also important to identify the issues on which there isn't a great dispute so we can get those out of the way prior to the mediation? Definitely. So when I'm doing a position statement, I tend to do a factual section. I go, I go through the background facts of a bit like a skeleton argument, but more tailored. And I certainly always identify what's agreed and then what's not agreed. But like I say, I just think putting that extra effort into the position statement does pay on the day. And I'm assuming that means all your case law that you're bringing out or do you leave well, that behind? Case law is a difficult one because you always have to remember with a mediation, you're not in court. It's a completely different process. So if I'm going into case law in my position statement, it's because I think I've got a killer point in there. I probably shouldn't be saying this, but if I'm a bit quiet on the case law, then it might mean I have a problem. But like I said, I shouldn't really be telling you that. I think from a mediator's point of view as well, the mediators tend to like a little less of the case law because Mediations are all about resolving issues and not just repeating what you'd be arguing about in court. Although I entirely get your point, Sarah. If you've got to kill a point, then make it. I know. I'm writing that down for my next mediations against you guys, I have to say. So top tip number one, make sure you produce a cracking position statement. What is your second top tip? I think I'd say to draft the compromise agreement as far as possible in advance. Now, it's not always possible because of the uh, variables. In fact, sometimes it's entirely impossible. But at the very least, you should draft what you think might happen or what you might hope to get to by the end of the day. Sarah, would you agree? Well, not completely. I certainly like to think about what um, the form of a, uh, the structure of a compromise might look like. I like to think about what documents I might need to draft. I might even think about what precedents would be useful to take with me. But I personally don't pre-draft it because when I draft, I like to start with a completely fresh slate. But everybody's style is different. Oh, I'm sure. And what about your third top tips? I think mine would be prepare for any issues that might arise. And by that, I mean uh, issues of tax and um, issues of transfer of property. Too many mediations uh, fail entirely or end up being drafted in terms of uh, heads of terms as opposed to a compromise agreement because the other side predominantly hasn't thought about tax issues or property or doesn't understand them. 
I suppose a good tip is to include those in your position statement as well, just to bring it back to what we were saying first, because obviously that means that the other side hopefully have the indication that this is going to be an issue and it gets them thinking as well. I think, yes. And as a mediator, I would encourage if I have an opportunity to speak to the uh, party's representatives before the mediation, I would encourage them to address tax issues and think about property issues prior to the day of the mediation, if possible, and include them as issues if that's if that's relevant. Well, we've, we've touched on the first one, which is put the effort into your position statement. It's going to pay off on the day. Like I say, if I see a fairly short anodyne position statement on the other side, I don't feel intimidated. Um, second one is I think what's so fascinating about mediation is, yes, it's it's a legal process, but it's also a psychological process. And I think, again, it's worth spending the time to think about what the psychological pressure points of your opponent might be. If there are certain things that you feel they will never agree to, you've got to identify those and be realistic about them when you're negotiating in the mediation. And then I think the third one, which is more of a plea on my behalf, which is stop making the mediation bundle so big because it's you don't do it in the same way as a trial bundle. There's just, there's just no point. And I think it's very important that the mediation bundle is really quite focused and compact. Let's face it, who looks at the mediation bundle on the day? And I think the answer is nobody. I think I'd agree with you there. Um, what documents do you think you really need to see in the bundle if you have them? Well, I mean, my big my big bugbear are bank statements because you, you can quite often get a mediation bundle and there will be hundreds of pages of bank statements. If you get to trial, the judge isn't even going to look at them. So who's going to look at them in a mediation? So I think, you know, predominantly we're within part eight in the sort of disputes we do. So you, you're going to want the witness statements, obviously, but just really limit it to the key exhibits. Um, just don't put everything in. And certainly I don't like reading all the correspondence about fixing up the mediation. Take that out. No, I, I think what I'd say as well is in terms of the schedule of resources, um, future needs, etc. we need an up-to-date version, um, not something that's a year old. And then at the date of the mediation, we're trying to ascertain exactly what the party's needs are on that date. So pretty much as you would expect to produce just before the final trial in terms of the schedule. Sarah, I'm curious, do you think it's a good idea to try and meet with your clients beforehand even if it's just a five minute chat or is it something that you can do if you get to the mediation early in the day? Um, Susters quite often ask me if I want a conference in advance and I, I generally take the view it's a waste of money. A mediation day as we warn the client at the beginning is generally a very long day and I, I don't normally find that I can't effectively ram a conference in at the beginning of the mediation day. So certainly from my point of view, it's not something I need. And I would generally only do it if the client really wants it as a hand-holding exercise. Perfect. So Marisa, do you tend to like to meet your clients beforehand? or I think I'd agree with Sarah. I wouldn't have it before the day because I think it's a waste of money, usually totally unnecessary. However, I would meet my clients an hour before the formal mediation start time, um, particularly if I've got issues that I need to raise with them. And of course, that will depend on whether it's a case that I've been involved with for some time, in which case I would expect to know what the client wanted, what the client's expectations were fairly well, as opposed to something that I've has just landed on my desk for mediation and I don't know the background of the case as well as I might. So we're all prepped for mediation. Sarah, how do you make sure that your mediation gets off to a good start? Well, 
Sarah's rule number one is no joint session. Um, when mediation started, this was something mediators were very insistent on as being a good idea. But I think even now most mediators accept it's not a good idea because in you know probate and trust disputes, the temperature tends to be quite high anyway between the clients. And what you tend to find is if you put them in a room together, even if the most you know neutral comments are made, they tend to get so angry that it puts the process back by some time. So certainly, I just like to get straight into it. And that sort of leads to my second point, which is you've got to make a tactical decision who you think is going to go with the first offer. Now, it's not as simple, in my experience, as saying, well, it's, you're the claimant, you've got to say. There may well have been offers made already, and therefore you feel that you want the other side to respond to what you've, you know, you've already put a marker down. You want the other side to respond. So I think tactically, it can be quite important who goes first in terms of making offers. And then the third one is just making sure that your client is completely clear on the issues as you get into the negotiating process and that they understand really what their merits or lack of merit are in relation to each one. Marisa, what do you do to make sure that your mediation gets off to a good start? Well, I'd agree with Sarah on the first point. Uh, I think the open sessions um, paved the way for disaster in a lot of cases. I suppose a case in point is a, a mediation on which I was persuaded by the mediator to have an opening session. And I thought the best way to deal with that, having already done a, an in-depth position statement, was by opening on the basis that we did have some things in common and there were some issues on which we agreed. The other side promptly by their counsel said, no, we don't. We disagree on nearly everything. And of course, it was hopeless. Um, so that opening session finished fairly, fairly quick, quickly. I don't think I've ever had a sensible opening session at all. Uh, so I'd definitely skip that. And certainly, even as a mediator, um, I wouldn't uh, suggest to the parties that there was an opening session unless they specifically wanted one. What I have had is a session where we've all got together towards the end of the day when a compromise has nearly been reached, which sounds strange, but in an area where family disputes are quite emotional, it has worked at the request of the parties, though. I think um, what is useful, and I think which is all, what almost happens in every mediation I do now, is to have a joint meeting, but just between the lawyers, because where that can really pay is identifying what the issues really are, because otherwise, quite often, it, particularly if it's something really complex, a tax point or whatever, relaying it through the mediator can sometimes lead to a breakdown in communication. So actually having a lawyer's meeting at the beginning and identifying that everybody's clear as to what the issues actually are is usually really helpful. I think my, and that leads on to my second point, Sarah, which was um, focus on the narrowing of issues if possible um, at the beginning. And if there are ancillary issues, which really may be very important to the clients, but which for the purposes of the mediation as a whole are relatively unimportant. Um, so from that point of view, I think it's, it, it's useful to, to get together and really, really focus. Well, that's going to be the old ashes one, isn't it? Or who's going to get the tea set? Exactly. Um, and yeah, I mean, what I tend to find is if you raise these at the end, you normally get a pretty dusty response. So if it's really important to the client, you've got to identify that at the beginning and make that part of your first offer, I think. I mean, I, I think if we don't meet with the other side at the beginning, the mediator should focus on sifting things out that are going to cause animosity. I had a mediation um, about a year ago where the opening ambit of the mediator was to come into the room, 
put a piece of paper in front of my client and tell her that those were the items that the other side wanted returned. Um, again, really, really unhelpful. I mean, I think the mediator was at fault for relaying that information back, but a meeting between counsel or the representatives would have solved that. Now, I'm just curious, do you tend to find that experts at mediations are helpful? So I'm talking accountants. I think from my point of view, unless there's a very, very specific issue, probably not. In most of the mediations I've done, there is or maybe an accountant at the end of the phone, but not actually physically there on the day. Well, I'm the expert. I don't need any. (laughs) Now, what are the most difficult elements that you've encountered in mediations and how have you dealt with those, Sarah? Well, I mean, Marisa's already um, caught on this point already. I think tax is is the big problem that can um, retard a settlement. Um, It can be because the need to take that advice hasn't been identified in advance. Um, You're then met with um, being told, oh, well, we can't get that advice now, so we can't settle now. So, yeah, it's really key to get that sorted out before you get there, I think. The the thing I found recently, which has really been a problem, is people coming to, uh, solicitors coming to mediations who are not probate or trust specialists, and therefore they then spend an inordinate amount of time on the phone to people in their office, in the private client team. That can be a massive problem in terms of actually nailing the deal down because they're just not confident in advising their client or making those choices when it comes to doing the deal. Yeah, and and I'd second that. I mean, I've already touched on it. I think attending a mediation when you haven't bottomed the issues that may arise in terms of tax or the transfer of property uh, is foolhardy, basically. Um, I've had several mediations where we've had to draft heads of terms, which I think are frankly pointless because the other side counsel actually, not even a solicitor, wasn't able to advise the client on on property issues. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point about heads of terms, because I think you've got to be really careful if you're going to use them. It can be so easy to think, oh, you know what, this is going to take hours. It's really difficult. Let's use the heads of terms. But you've actually then got to be really clear what the heads of terms is achieving, because I had a case where I wasn't involved, but I was involved in the follow-up litigation, where one side thought the heads of terms were binding and the other side didn't. So if you're going to use heads of terms, you've got to make it absolutely clear that it's not legally binding. But then my attitude to that is, why bother with it? You may as well just do an aid memoir as to what you main head. You know, you don't need a formal agreement. You can just do a list of what you've agreed. I've also, I've, I mean, I've had a few of these that require infant approval by the court. So the representatives for the children haven't been involved in inheritance acts mediations. Uh, Heads of terms have been drawn up and they've later fallen apart entirely because the parties have changed their mind, those that even were involved. So I I think heads of terms are generally pointless. I mean, they are an aid memoir, as you say, they're not legally binding and the parties can renege from them. Well, they shouldn't be legally binding. Like I say, there is a risk that if you use it and you, you, you put in terms that make it look like it's a binding deal, that it actually can be binding, even though that wasn't the intention. So like I say, in any heads of terms, the first term should be, this is not legally binding. You really need to make that clear. And just touching on documenting the agreement, because I know we've just been speaking about that. Sarah, what is the best way to do that? I know you're going to say heads of terms, avoid at all costs. But when you're actually getting into the nitty gritty of drafting the agreement, is there anything in there that you hate seeing or that you think is just superfluous? Well, 
just just to comment on structuring deals, this is actually, and I would say this, wouldn't I, um, where I think using counsel is particularly valuable because when you're coming to document it, the first thing you need to be asking yourself is, what structure do I want to use to make this deal in the most tax efficient way possible for my client? And also, have I got court proceedings that I can use to get a deal that is retrospective for tax purposes? So those are sort of um, those are sort of, sort of key issues you need to think about. Now, in terms of pet peeves, um, what I really can't stand is I will draft something, and you know, I, I, I'm a traditionalist, and I was trained that good drafting is concise drafting. Um, I will send across my draft, and what I will quite often get back is the insertion of what I call boilerplate clauses, which have been lifted from commercial contracts. And in the end, you normally sort of with a bad grace agree to them. But I can't emphasize too too strongly, these, these clauses are pointless. And actually in these sort of disputes, what you want is a concise agreement because the more words you use, the more mistakes you can make. And I think it's also helpful as well for your clients, isn't it? If it's written... Clearly, plain English, as straightforward as possible, it's obviously going to be a benefit to them, isn't it? Yeah, like I say, I'm putting words in for the sake of it is a mistake, but I, I just sometimes suspect do people do it to make it look like they're doing something? I think that might be the reason. But as a rule, structure is key. Identify what documents you need and do them in as tax efficient a form as possible is what we're aiming for. Is there anything you'd like to add on that, Marisa? I don't think so, other than I don't think any of the parties understand a lot of these boilerplate agreements and explaining it to your client is not impossible. And most of the time they have no impact at all on the issues or what should be contained in the agreement. I suppose what the other thing that you sometimes get a bit of a spat about is whether you're going to have confidentiality clauses in it now. I might be talking rubbish about this, but I take the view they're virtually unenforceable. So I never ask for them and I don't put them in unless the other side absolutely insists on them. I just, you know full well they're all going to talk about it outside the mediation. So what's the point? I mean, there's very rarely any need for the confidentiality anyway. So no, absolutely agree. Um, can I just raise one issue that I probably should have raised earlier, but I do think it's really important. I've had several mediations recently that have nearly fallen apart at the outset because, um, and this is probably a fault of the mediator more than anything else, the mediator hasn't made clear to the other parties who is in the other room. So I've been there as a representative of one of the parties and my clients have realised that there is someone involved in the mediation that they weren't forewarned about and it's very nearly resulted in the in my clients leaving. Um, so that is a big no-no I think it's really, really important that both sides are absolutely crystal clear about who is going to be participating in the mediation on the day. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is something in that. I mean, I've had some cases where you feel that somebody is influencing uh, the other party to the litigation. And the key to that is that you write in advance and say, we will not accept them being in the other room. Now, what happens if you can't settle, though, at your mediation? Do you have a, a general course that you advise your clients to follow afterwards? Well, I mean, during the mediation process, you will normally make the threat, if you don't take this, we are going to be part 36-ing you on Monday. Now, what I what I find quite often in mediations is if you've managed to shift the other side quite a long way from what they actually wanted, they can reach a sort of almost emotional wall that they can't get beyond. So what I find happens when you don't settle on the day is that quite often the other side will ask for a week, two weeks to keep the offer open and let them think about it. So certainly I'm always open to that and I wouldn't part 36 until any period like that is over. Have you ever had a second mediation? Yeah, I have. Um, I think it's going to arise really in two contexts. Um, and this 
sort of ties in with, I think, a question you're going to ask us in a minute about what was your most difficult mediation. I had a mediation. It was a very big breach of trust case. And the other side turned up on the day with four massive company valuations, slapped them on the table and tried to ambush us and then proceeded to say, if you say the words breach of trust, Sarah, we're walking out. Unsurprisingly, that one collapsed. Um, We mediated again a year later and we settled it. But I really did wonder what the point of the first mediation was because that sort of tactic was not going to work. But the other scenario where I think it's quite common to have connective mediations is if there's a professional negligence element. Now, you'll probably get one side that will want the main dispute and the professional negligence claim dealt with together because they want to shuffle liability onto the insurer. But if you're the one who actually wants to make recovery from the main party, you're going to insist on separate mediations to stop the issues being blurred. A good mediator will always say to you that they're happy to technically keep the mediation process open and facilitate the party still having discussions because, yes, the solicitors can carry on corresponding. I don't find that works as well as involving the mediator and helping the parties come together, but outside the formal process. Now, you've mentioned good mediators, and I really think they're key to you know making sure that you have a successful mediation. What advice would you give to solicitors when they're looking around at mediators and compiling their shortlist of who to pick? Well, I think the first point is don't assume because a mediator is really expensive and by expensive, generally it's London mediators are more expensive. Don't assume that that that's worth paying for. In my experience, what you want is either a solicitor or counsel who are experienced in probate and trust disputes and really are very practically minded. I think that's what you want. And it's better value for money for the client. What about you, Marisa? What would you say that they look out for? Well, obviously, someone that's um, experienced in the area, particularly if you want a mediator to push back. And and of course, that as, as, a, as a mediator, I can say that not all parties want you to push back to test the waters really with them. But It's something that I like when I'm in a mediation. If I'm representing one of the parties, I like a mediator to push back on my arguments and I expect them to push back on the other side. I find that those kind of mediators are the mediators that are more likely to get a result. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, some mediations I've had where they failed is because I felt the mediator was acting just as a post box and perhaps not actually relaying the parties' respective positions accurately enough. So again, that sort of goes back to the point about I want somebody who understands the area and therefore they can take the points accurately to the other side. But I agree entirely with Marisa. You want a mediator who will say to each room, these are your problems. Have you thought about them? Have you thought about the implications of losing? But on the other hand, I don't want a mediator who spends all day telling me what and they shall remain nameless, uh, their opinion of the merits is and what they think the outcome will be. That's going too far. That's going too far. Now, Sarah, what is the most difficult mediation that you've had? Naming no names of any anyone involved, but what would you say was the most difficult mediation and why? Well, it's the one I just touched on where they arrived with the company these enormous company valuations and slapped them on the table and said, these are highly confidential. You can only look at them today. And to to me, that was a nightmare mediation because ambushing somebody in a mediation is puerile and does not work. Definitely counterproductive in my experience. What about you, Marisa? I think mine has probably been a mediation where the other side were totally unprepared for any property issues. And since the whole mediation was about a misbehaving executor who had pinched a property from a beneficiary, it was pretty crucial. And and getting through that was really difficult. It did eventually result in heads of terms, 
which then took months and months and months to sort out. Actually, that, that's just made me think of another point um, about getting valuations in advance of mediation. Something that I find is a big problem in mediations is where neither side has an up-to-date valuation. And then you're told by the other side, oh, well, I've just rung a valuer up and he's told me it's worth this. What are you supposed to do with that information? You're not going to accept what you're being told. So if valuation is going to be an issue, it's got to be thought about in advance of the mediation. And I think that comes into the preparation, doesn't it? And the documents as a as a representative of one of the parties you do want to see, and actually as a mediator you want to see, you want to see up-to-date valuations if there are going to be any, up-to-date identification of property if it's a case where the purchase of property may come up, and an up-to-date schedule of needs and future resources. And I suppose in that category as well, you've got a state accounts, because you were saying before, Marisa, they need to be up-to-date. But I've had cases where we've spent hours on the phone where you've got a separate firm of solicitors who are doing the estate administration, trying to actually, like you say, get the bang up-to-date position can be really difficult. Now, we always remember the bad times, but what about the good times? What was your best mediation and why was it so good? So I, I had one um, years ago. It, it involved um, an elderly chap who'd um, lived in Stockport, and I'm from Stockport. Um, but anyway, he lived in a small terraced house and he was a hoarder and he sort of um, lived surrounded by banana skins and banana crates. But it turned out he had two and a half million pounds. And my guy was a young guy, his neighbour, who'd looked after him and cared for him for years. And he made a will leaving everything to my guy. Um, the beneficiaries under the previous will were alleging want of knowledge and approval because my beneficiary had been involved in preparing the will. But anyway, we got to the end of the mediation and my client ended up a millionaire and that gave me a real kick because he was such a genuine and lovely person. Wow, that sounds like a story straight out of the newspapers. <laughs> Risa, what about you? I don't think I can better that, actually. I think I think my best mediations have been mediations that are over and done within a couple of hours because there's been a very realistic first offer from the other side and we've accepted it. We've not messed around, we've not pushed back because actually the offer was fair. Actually, Marisa's just reminded me of a point there about you were saying, what do we want from a mediator? What I like in a mediator is where they actually, to use a cliche, think out of the box. So it's not just a question of exchanging offers all through the day, but they identify that sometimes the tactics need to change, like saying to each side, what's your best and final? So the mediator knows and then can try and work out ways to bridge the gap. And what are your top tips for keeping your clients engaged? Because I know we've said that mediations can, can really last a long time and you can sometimes be stuck in the same room looking at the same four walls. How do you make sure that it is a comfortable experience for your client? Well, I... I won't impinge on what I think Sarah's going to say. So what I will say is most of my mediations now aren't in person. They're mostly remote. And that that issue, I suppose, has been slightly watered down because the parties generally can leave the mediation room, so to speak, and return. Yeah, and they can make their own cups of tea and coffee as and when they need them. Exactly. So I, I think it's a very different dynamic a remote mediation as opposed to a mediation where you are all sitting in a room? I mean, for me, the key is humour. A mediation is a really alien environment for a client and they tend to be extremely tense because let's face it, the outcome of that mediation might change the whole course of their life. In mediation, 
I have the patter ready, I tell the jokes, I play the fool. And you know what? There's a serious side to that because the clients are relaxed. And when they're relaxed, they feel able to make decisions. Anybody who knows me knows my favorite topics of conversation used to include Jeremy Kyle. Unfortunately, he's not on TV anymore. But football, cricket, you name it, I can gab about it. And the and it's all quite deliberate because, like I say, the clients love it and it puts them in the right frame of mind to then engage fully with the process. Oh, and sometimes I get them to do a bit of yoga as well. Fabulous tips there. I think I'm certainly going to try some yoga in my next mediation. Thank you both for being so frank and honest. I think you've given us some really good tips and tricks there. And I certainly found it useful. I think preparation is key. You need some good position statements. Make sure you've got your issues defined well in advance of the mediation. And you've got up-to-date valuations. And certainly, I know my opinion on in-person mediations hasn't changed. So thank you very much, Marisa. Thanks, Kate. And thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you, Kate. And of course, it goes without saying, if anyone's listening to this and has any questions, I know any of us would be more than happy to answer them. 